Greetings, detective. Welcome to the Murder Mystery Company and our new free service, Calm Mystery. We know that many of you need that calm and centered moment, but meditation isn't necessarily your thing. If you're a mystery lover, a crime fan, and could use a break, you've come to the right place. It sure is a suspenseful world out there, but I have good news for you. In this world, the only suspense will come from the world's best writers. For the next few minutes, we're going to close the door on the outside world. First, find a comfortable chair, sofa, or bed. Take a moment to just relax into that spot. Let your body sink in, slowly releasing the day's tension. Just relax. You've earned this time. You need this time for you. Your body will thank you. Now let's take a moment to clear your mind. I want you to focus on two things. My voice and your breathing. Take a deep breath in through your nose. Let it out slowly through your mouth. Now the same thing, but let's breathe on my count. Three counts in and four counts out. Breathe in one, two, three. Now out one, two, three, four. As we do this, you're going to slowly relax more and be perfectly ready for tonight's dastardly tale. Now again, breathe in. One, two, three. Now out. One, two, three, four. One more time, breathing out the last bit of stress. Breathe in, one, two, three. Now out, one, two, three, four. Excellent. Tonight's tale of mystery, intrigue, and murder is truly spine-tingling. It had to look good, so when Burford grabbed for him, he stepped back and swung a hearty right into the middle of Burford's face. Burford staggered but kept on coming. He clipped Shoemaker's jaw glancingly, swung again and missed, then gave him a beauty in the eye. Shoemaker aimed for the midriff and got it. Oof, said Burford. Then Hale tackled him from behind and the three of them were all over him. Shoemaker writhed, kicking, biting, and using his elbows, but every time he tore loose they brought him down again. After a while, he was beginning to wonder if he could get away even if he really meant it. Then, somehow, Davies got a half-Nelson on him and bore down. Shoemaker decided it was time to quit. He looked at his opponents. Burford had a black eye and several assorted contusions, Hale a puffed and bleeding cheek. 
He couldn't see Davy's face, but the pants leg stretched out beside his own was ripped and hanging down over the boot, revealing a hairy thigh. Shoemaker felt pretty good. Oof, said Burford, gazing at him with a new respect. He got up carefully, walked over to the sick box, and came back with a box of powders and a glass of water. He knelt. Shoemaker glared at him. Burford said, "'Okay, baby, open your mouth and we'll pry it open. Hold his head, Lou.' Davy's big hand clasped Shoemaker's skull, and Burford pried at his lower jaw. The instant his lips parted, Burford tilted the powder into his mouth and pushed it shut again. Shoemaker's eyes bulged. "'Swallow,' said Burford remorselessly, and grabbed Shoemaker's nose between a horny finger and thumb. Shoemaker swallowed. "'Now you get the water,' Burford said, and held the glass to his lips. Shoemaker drank meekly. Burford stood up. "'Well,' he said uncertainly, "'that's that.' Davies let go of Shoemaker and eased out from under him. Then he stood beside Burford and Hale, and all three looked down at Shoemaker. There were real tears in Shoemaker's eyes, from having his nose pinched in Burford's vice-like grip, and his face looked drawn. Slowly, like an old man, he got to his feet, walked to the table, and sat down. "'Now, Jim,' Davies said hesitantly, "'don't take on. It isn't so bad. You'll be a better man for it, you know.' You'll probably gain weight and everything. Now, Jim, Shoemaker wasn't listening. His eyes were rigid and glassy, his jaw lax. Slowly, he began to tremble. He slumped over and hit the deck with a thud, still jerking. Good Lord! exploded Burford. What is it? Hale demanded. Mitchell's reaction, said Burford. Hasn't happened twice in thirty years. I never thought... "'Is it dangerous, Charlie?' "'Lord, yes. Wait till I get the handbook.' Shoemaker heard his quick steps, then pages being riffled. When he thought it was safe, Shoemaker sneaked a look out of one eye. The other two men were pressed close to Burford, staring over his shoulders. Their backs were to him, but he kept jerking his body occasionally anyway, just to be on the safe side. "'Treatment,' said Burford hoarsely. Extended rest on soft diet, diathermy, UV irradiation, hourly injection of... Hell, we can't do that. We haven't got half the stuff. What happens if you don't get it, Charlie? said Davies nervously. I mean to say, how long... Burford flipped pages. General debility progressing rapidly, followed by heart stoppage and death over four to ten weeks. Oh, my, said Davies. "'What'll we do, Charlie? I mean—' "'Wait a minute here. Are you sure he's got what you think?' asked Hale skeptically. "'How do you know he's not faking?' "'Faking?' said Burford. "'Well, he's got all the symptoms.' He riffled pages. "'Immediate unconsciousness, violent tremors. Uh-oh. Look at this.' The two heads craned forward eagerly. There was a moment of silence, and then Hale giggled. "'Well, if he does that, I'll believe you.' "'Yes,' said Davies seriously. "'But if he's unconscious, how can he—' "'Burford glanced at the handbook again. "'He should be coming to any time now,' 
he said loudly. When he does, we'll know for sure. Shoemaker grinned to himself. He knew that section of the medical handbook by heart. Patient remains unconscious and cannot be roused for twenty minutes to one half hour. He kept his eyes closed and waited, jerking occasionally, for what he judged was a good twenty minutes, then another five for good measure. When he opened them again, he saw Davy's anxious face a few inches away, flanked by Burford's and Hale's. "'He's coming out of it,' said Burford. "'How do you feel, old man?' "'Why?' said Shoemaker. "'You've had a little stroke,' said Burford mendaciously. "'Help me get him up. You'll be all right, Jim, but you've got to do just as we tell you.' "'Poison me,' Shoemaker gasped, suffering himself to be hoisted limply erect. "'No, no,' Davies protested. "'We're trying to help you, Jimmy boy. Just go with Charlie. That's right. Here, take this bottle, Charlie.' Even Shoemaker was a little startled by what followed. When they returned, Burford nodded solemnly. "'It was blue, all right,' he said. "'Poisoned me,' said Shoemaker, allowing himself to speak a little more emphatically. "'Oh, hell,' said Burford, lifting Shoemaker's quaking body into a chair. "'So we poisoned you. We didn't mean to do it. Question is now, what's to be done?' "'Why, we've got to get him to a hospital,' said Davies. "'Got to start back to Earth immediately.' "'Uh, but Charlie, will he be well enough to work on the trip?' "'It might not kill him,' said Burford grimly. "'But what about us? Are we going to go back empty-handed?' "'Oh, my,' said Davies. "'I forgot for a minute.' "'No, we can't do that. "'But look here, Charlie.' If he dies while we're still here, how are we going to get back without him? We'll have to, that's all, said Burford. Check, said Hale. Well, I got to admit you boys are right, said Davies promptly, with a long face. Never had to make a more difficult decision in my life. Poor old Jim. When I think... He stopped with a gasp as Shoemaker rose to his feet swelling visibly with rage. "'When I think,' said Shoemaker loudly, "'of the chances I've had,' he found himself encumbered by the broken halves of the capsule under his tongue and spat them out violently, "'to strangle the whole murdering crew of you quietly in your sleep.' His fingers curled. He started toward Davy slowly on stiff legs. Burford was staring at the capsule halves on the deck." Suddenly he bent and picked them up, saw the faint blue stain that still clung to their edges. Light broke over his face. "'Methylene blue,' he said. "'You knew. You hid this in your mouth and swallowed it. Why, you old—' "'I did,' said Shoemaker. "'And now I'm going to make you swallow it.' He stepped forward and swung a vigorous right that knocked Burford through the open door. Hale had picked up a chair. Shoemaker ducked aside as it whooshed down, meanwhile kicking Hale in the stomach. Then he looked around for Davies, but the latter, it seemed, was behind him. Something tapped Shoemaker on the back of the skull, and then everything faded away in gray mist. The mist lifted once, while, with a throbbing head, he listened to Burford explaining that 
Everything on the ship that could possibly be a weapon was locked up. That if he attempted any more reactionary violence, they would as soon leave him dead on Venus as not. And that if he knew what was good for him, he would behave himself both before the takeoff, which would occur when they pleased, and after it. He tried to tell Burford what he could do with himself, but he fell asleep again before he was half through. When he woke, finally, it was evening, and low voices from the galley forward told him that the other three had returned from another day of hunting. He got up, feeling stiff and heavy, and prowled disconsolately down the passageway as far as his shop door, which was indeed locked. He was hungry, but he had a feeling that the sight of any one of the other three human faces on Venus would take away his appetite. For lack of anything better to do, he stepped into the airlock, closed the inner door quietly behind him, and sat down morosely in the sally port. Sky and sea were dull blue-green, without star or horizon. There was a stink of sulfur, and then a stink of fish, and then another stink of sulfur. He sat and sweated, thinking his gloomy thoughts. Shoemaker was not a moral man, but the sense of personal doom was strong upon him. Suppose there really were a hell, he thought. Only the preachers were wrong about everything but the heat. A splitting skull. No liquor. No women. A stinking slime-blue seascape that was the same right-side-up, upside-down, or crossways. And the little green men. He had almost forgotten them. When he looked up, he remembered. The third little man was slimmer, and had no whiskers at all. He carried a shiny golden dagger, almost as big as himself. He was walking forward purposefully. Shoemaker waited, paralyzed. The little green man fixed him with his gleaming eye. "'We're through kidding around,' he said grimly. "'Question is now!' And he laid the golden dagger in Shoemaker's quaking palm. Shoemaker's first impulse was to cut his own throat. His second was to throw the dagger as far away as possible. Those two came in flashing tenths of a second. The third was stronger. He rose effortlessly into the air, landed facing the sally port, and, mouth wide but emitting no sound, ran straight through it. He passed the closed inner door more by a process of ignoring it than by bursting it open. Directly opposite was the door of Burford's cubby, just now opened far enough to show Burford's startled face. When he saw Shoemaker, he tried hastily to shut the door, but Shoemaker by now had so much momentum as to have reached, for practical purposes, the status of an irresistible force. In the next second, he came to a full stop, but this was only because he was jammed against Burford, who was jammed against the far wall of the room, which was braced by five hundred tons of metal. Ugh, said Burford. Where did you get that knife? Shut up and start talking, said Shoemaker wildly. Where's the microspectrograph? Burford opened his mouth to yell, 
Shoemaker shut it with a fist, meanwhile thrusting the knife firmly against Burford's midriff to illustrate the point. Burford spat out a tooth. As Shoemaker put a little more pressure on the blade, he said hastily, "'It's in the uh, fuel reservoir.' Shoemaker whirled him around and propelled him into the corridor, after a quick look to make sure that the way was clear. They proceeded to the engine room in this order. Burford, knife, shoemaker. Without waiting to be persuaded, Burford produced a ring of keys, unlocked the reservoir, and withdrew the microspectrograph. Hook it up, said Shoemaker. Burford did so. Uh, said Burford. Now what? Whiskey? Nope, said Shoemaker incautiously. We're taking off. Burford's eyes bulged. He made a woofling noise and then, without warning, lunged forward, grabbing Shoemaker's knife arm with one hand and punching him with the other. They rolled on the deck. Shoemaker noticed that Burford's mouth was open again, and he put his hand into it, being too busy keeping away from Burford's knee to take more effective measures. Burford bit a chunk out of the hand and shouted, "'Hail! Davies! Help!' There were bangings in the corridor. Shoemaker decided the knife was more of a hindrance than a help and dropped it. When Burford let go to reach for it, he managed to roll them both away, at the same time getting a good two-handed grip on Burford's skinny throat. This maneuver had the disadvantage of putting Burford on top, but Shoemaker solved the problem by lifting him bodily and banging his skull against the nearby bulkhead. Burford sagged. Shoemaker pushed him out of the way and got up, just in time to be knocked down hard by Hale's chunky body. "'Old idiot,' panted Hale. "'Help me, Davies!' Shoemaker got an ear between his teeth and was rewarded by a blood-curdling scream from Hale. Davies was hopping ponderously around in the background, saying, "'Boys, stop it! Oh, my! The guns are all locked up! Charlie, give me the keys!' Shoemaker pulled himself loose from Hale, sprang up, and was immediately pulled down again. Burford, who was getting dizzily to his feet, tripped over Shoemaker's head and added himself to the tangle. Shoemaker got a scissors on him, and then devoted himself to the twin problems of avoiding Burford's wildly threshing heels and keeping Hale away from his throat. Suddenly inspired, he solved both by bending Burford's body upward so that the latter's booted feet on their next swing struck Hale squarely in the middle of his fat face. At this point, he noticed that Davies was standing nearby with one foot raised. He grasped the foot and pushed. Davies hit the deck with a satisfying clang. Shoemaker got up for the third time and looked around for the dagger, but it had been kicked out of sight. He paused, wondering whom to hit next, and in the interval all three of his opponents scrambled up and came at him. Shoemaker thought, this is it. He spat on his fist for luck and hit Burford a beauty on the chin. Burford fell down and astonishingly got up again. A little disheartened, Shoemaker took two blows in the face from Hale before he knocked the little man into a far corner. Hale got up again. Shoemaker, who had been aware for some time that someone was pummeling his back, turned around unhappily and knocked Davies down. 
Davies, at any rate, stayed down. Burford, whose face was puffy, and Hale, who was bleeding from assorted cuts, came toward him. Hale, he saw, had the dagger in his hand. Shoemaker stepped back, picked up the unconscious Davies by collar and belt, and slung him across the deck. This time, both men went down, Hale with a soggy bloomp, and stayed there. The dagger skidded out of Hale's hand and came to rest at Shoemaker's feet. He picked it up, knelt at a convenient distance to cut off Hale's and Burford's noses, and threatened to do just that. Burford intimated that he would do as he was told. Hale said nothing, but the expression on his face was enough. Satisfied, Shoemaker opened a locker with Burford's keys, got a coil of insulated wire and tied up Davies and Hale, after which, with Burford's help, he strapped them into their acceleration hammocks. Burford was acting a little vague. Shoemaker slapped him around until he looked alive, then set him to punching calculator keys. After a few minutes of this, Burford looked as if he wanted to say something. "'Well, spit it out,' said Shoemaker, waving the golden knife. "'You'll get yours,' said Burford, looking scared but stubborn. "'When we get back to New York—' "'South Africa,' corrected Shoemaker. "'Where the Supreme Council can't ask us any questions.' Burford looked surprised, then said it was a good idea. It was, too. The lone star winked out in the blue-green heavens, and the winds of its passing died away. The throng of little rabbit-eared green men, floating on their placid ocean, gazed after it long after it had disappeared. "'What do you think?' said the slim one without whiskers. "'Did they like us?' The one addressed was yards away, but his long ears heard the question plainly. "'Can't say,' he answered. "'They acted so funny. When we spoke to that one in their own language so as to make him feel at home—' "'Yes,' said a third, almost invisible in the mist. "'Was that the right thing to do, do you suppose? Are you sure you got the words right that last time?' "'Sure,' said the first, confidently. "'I was right next to the ship all evening, and I memorized everything they said.' They considered that for a while, sipping from their flasks. Other voices piped up. "'Maybe we should have talked to them when they were all together.' "'No, that was so big. That one was much the nicest anyway. He took our present.' "'Yes.' said the slim one, summing it up. They must have liked us all right. After all, they gave us this. Swinging his flask to make a pleasant gurgle of 150-proof grain alcohol. That proves it. Thank you for listening to Calm Mystery, a Murder Mystery Company production. To solve your own case with us, visit MurderMysteryZoomParty.com, all one word, and use code CALM, C-A-L-M, for $20 off your own murder mystery party. We have dozens of entertaining detectives. You can even ask for me, Perry, by name. If no one else can help, and if they can find me, maybe I can help you become Detective of the Night.
That's murdermysteryzoomparty.com, all one word, code CALM.